Hello and welcome to this Royal Irish Academy podcast on climate and society in Ireland. I'm your host, Jill Plunkett, and this is a series of four podcasts exploring the long view of climate change by interviewing the authors of Climate and Society in Ireland. We talk about hunter-gatherers, disease, poetry, weather events, and consider our future vulnerabilities. In today's podcast, we're joined by Graham Warren, professor in the School of Archaeology in University College Dublin. You're very welcome, Graham. Thank you, Joe. Tell me a little bit about your background. So um, I'm an archaeologist who specialises in the study of prehistoric hunter-gatherers. Been in Ireland for about the last 20 years and and worked in in England and Scotland before that. But but always my, my focus has really been on periods of time here that we commonly call the Mesolithic or the Middle Stone Age, but more recently, uh, probably slightly broader work on on how we deal with hunter-gatherer archaeology and issues around uh, hunter-gatherers past and present. So your paper delves into a, a much deeper past than the previous podcasts have looked at. Ireland was a very different place then. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like or, and how we know what it was like? Yeah, absolutely. So the the periods of time we're we're dealing with it it's the it's the deep time past in a in an Irish context, and I think probably important to point out that in a global context we're we're still dealing with a comparatively short period of time in in Ireland. There'd be places where where a hunter gatherer past might go back hundreds of thousands of years, and and uh, hominin pasts would go back even longer. But in an Ireland, we're we're generally talking about well good evidence from about 10,000 years ago and some patchy evidence from from a little bit older than that, maybe 12 and a half, 12, um, 13,000 years ago. And the, the period of time we're dealing with when, when Ireland was settled by hunting and gathering communities ends roughly 6,000 years ago when farming first appears on this island. So the, 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 the hunter-gatherer, the story of hunter-gatherer Ireland is a story of a very long period of time. And through that time, Ireland changed dramatically in terms of the type of landscape it was. Climate change played out in in different ways across that period, and that led to very, very different landscapes. So if we we wanted to to simplify, and we can talk about the the Mesolithic here rather than the the late glacial period, this is a period of time when when Ireland was colonised by a variety of species of trees, which formed different communities. But Ireland in in general was probably a a forested landscape. And as I say, the, the composition of those trees were different in the early parts of the Mesolithic, when there were much more birch dominated forests, and some pine than in the later parts of the Mesolithic when oak would have been a much more common species. But generally, those varied forested landscapes, but also very, very significant changes in sea level as well. Again, broadly speaking, sea level sea level over this period has risen. So for much of Ireland, what was the Mesolithic coastline is now 30 or 40 metres beneath the sea. Whereas in some parts of Ireland, because of the way the land has bounced back, after the ice was was weighing it down, some parts of those shorelines are now preserved above the contemporary shoreline. So it's it's complicated. We can make general statements, but the local detail is often quite tricky to to work out. But a but a very it's a very different landscape than the one we might be familiar with today. A very 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 different place with a very different ecology. 
And what do we know about the people who occupied this landscape? Um, we, we know quite a lot and we know quite a little at the, at the same kind of time. It's, it's that classic archaeological, um, archaeological duality. The, the first thing to stress is that, th- that these were people like us. Sometimes people think of, of hunter-gatherers and they assume that these are, these are primitives or savages or, or not quite human in the way we are. But no, these are, these are homo sapiens. The um, genetic evidence suggests that they perhaps had some physical characteristics which are a little bit different than populations we would normally expect in this in this part of the world and they may for example have had quite dark pigmented skin combined with very blue eyes and sometimes fair hair as well um, and that's a genetic type which was which was pretty common in 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 western europe during the mesolithic period but they had the same capacity for intelligence the same ability to develop skills the same ways of understanding the world in, in all kinds of complex and weird ways including beliefs that would make no sense to us just as our beliefs would make no sense no sense to them. Even to us. <laughs> um, and what kind of evidence did they leave behind? So the the evidence they leave behind varies in kind. The we we talk about this you know that the Mesolithic is the Middle Stone Age, um, and in archaeological terms, it's dominated by stone. But that's only because stone is the material that survives best. Ireland generally has acidic soils, so all of the wonderful things they made out of of wood or animal skins or plant fibers those only survive under very very rare conditions. So a lot of what we find is is stone tools. But we do have some exceptional sites where different conditions of preservation means that we can understand those those organic stone tools. And there'd be a variety of estimates. Uh, If you look at kind of traditional small scale societies today, they estimate that 90 or 95 percent of their material culture is made out of organic materials. So we're only normally seeing a very small amount survive. But we find fantastic woven fish traps, basket shaped fish traps. For for example, we find little um, tapers of pine wood, really resinous wood, which has been burnt, presumably as a torch of some kind. There's possible model toy boats carved out of wood. A a wide variety of um, organic artefacts. In fact, Ireland's quite unusual in in having um, some of those materials. Structural evidence in terms of the types of buildings is rare. There's a few key sites that um, people keep on talking about. So at at Mount Sandal um, in Londonderry, uh, above the River Ban, there's a a series of circular, subcircular huts, about six metres in diameter, built on a bluff um, above the river, probably about 7,700 B.C., but many of the other sites, it's much harder to find clear evidence of the sorts of buildings that people were using. And chances are that that's not just because it's a long time ago and they're difficult to find. But if these were communities that were quite mobile and if they were communities that were using tents, then those tents would ne- never leave a very substantial archaeological trace. So the when we excavate sites and we find a few pits or a scattered fireplace and a spread of stone tools, that, that's probably exactly what we would expect of people relying and living in, in tents and quite open structures. And it's really important to, to stress that for, for many contemporary and near-contemporary hunter-gatherers, the choice to live in tents is, is a deliberate choice in order to maintain the, the proximity of everyone in a settlement, that everyone is living very, very close together. They're not hidden from each other. They're kind of always intervisible and always present in each other's lives. And that that shared sense of presence 
is central to the really important social institution of sharing, which is so critical in many hunter-gatherer cultures. And there's a variety of uh, work done on this, but one of the statements that comes out really nicely is that sharing is on the other side of the house. Once you start getting houses and you start getting private spaces, sharing becomes less important. So I think the, the absence of evidence for buildings in the Irish Mesolithic should actually be read as being a, a choice in the past that they're making to emphasise the importance of living together and maintaining sharing and maintaining community. Oh, that's really interesting. It's not something I had thought about before, but I saw the the report of the experimental archaeology. It was in UCD that looked at the traces that are left behind from these more ephemeral types of structures. And it's quite astonishing how things can just be obliterated from the record in a short space of time. And, and absolutely. And the you know, some some tents need leather, never have left much of a physical record in the in the ground. But it's um there's lots of really nice work done in Norway on this, and that provides a, a framework for thinking about the different types of structures, the different evidence they leave, and it's quite a useful one for thinking about the Irish Mesolithic as well, which which we've often thought about in terms of negatives and absences, that you know, everything must have been destroyed or nothing has survived because it's so long ago. And that may be true, but some of that may also be to do with the choices that people made about the sorts of things that they decided to build. And then it's not just that they built tents because they couldn't do anything else. We know that they could build platforms at the edges of lakes. We know that they could build more substantial structures. So why were they making those choices? What was it that was driving that particular form of material expression? That's a maybe a slightly more interesting way of approaching the, the question. So we're looking at a long time period, several millennia, um, you've already given us an outline of how the forests changed, the forest composition changed during that time, and the fact that sea level was affecting coastal areas. Um, what about climate change? What what was climate like, and what and did it change during this time? Yeah. <laughs> how long have we got on this podcast to answer a question like that? Yeah, the, the, it's a really good question, and it's a really hard question, um, and the. the, the you know, because climate change covers so many different things and it changes according to different drivers and it changes at different time scales. So, for example, at the kind of the broadest of levels. So if we assume that the, the Mesolithic begins with the start of the, the Holocene, what until recently we would have called our geological epoch, but, but obviously the Anthropocene changes, changes that. But the Holocene is generally seen to start about 11,700 years ago. That's a little bit earlier than we have good evidence for, for people in Ireland, but let's say 11,700. And, and that first period of the Holocene down to about 7,000 years ago, in general, in a Northern European context, is seen as a cool, temperate climate. You're still, you're still dealing with the major consequences of deglaciation in the Northern Hemisphere, which can, you know, we'll talk about some of the specifics there. But over this period, you've still got very substantial bodies of ice, such as the North American ice mass, down-wasting. So that's having a significant impact on, on climate. But following about seven and a half thousand years ago, you move into what's sometimes called the Holocene Climactic Optimum where they talk about uh, summer temperatures being perhaps a couple of degrees higher than, well, they say today, we probably need to, to roll that one back to about 1970 or something rather than, rather than the temperatures we're having today. But there's that general sense of change, but that's punctuated by a series of events of different magnitudes and different potential impacts. So 
the one that gets most attention is what's sometimes called the 8200 um, calibrated years before present event, the 8200 event. And this is where the, the, the final catastrophic collapse of, the, of one of the North American ice sheets leads to a massive influx of fresh water into the North Atlantic. And that significantly changes patterns of circulation of the North Atlantic, which have a very big impact on, um, on the climate. And across much of, of Europe, that seems to cause a, a very significant climate change for perhaps 100 or 150 150 years and we can we can talk about perhaps a, a little bit later about how that may or may not have influenced hunter gatherers living in Ireland so that's a that's a dramatic change in terms of climate but there's also other ones at 9200 years ago 6300 years ago on some proxies is great work at um, Crag Cave for example where they identified other events at about 7700 years ago so there's lots of different possible changes and one of the the challenges is picking apart local records against general regional sequences and matching really high resolution modern analyses with a lot of the data which was generated a little bit uh, some time ago and doesn't quite have that resolution. But as well as those climate changes, and these are these are climate changes in that they'd be, they'd be experienced as changes in the weather, but we also have sudden extreme environmental events which might fit into this. So we talked about sea level change overall, and that had its own temporality, sometimes quick, sometimes slow. Its impact on particular landscapes would have been variable, a slow inundation, a, sorry, an inundation would be quite slow in an environment marked by cliffs. It wouldn't you wouldn't notice it so much. But in a low-lying coastal landscape, even a small increase in sea level might lead to lots of flooding. And in a in a northwest European context, we have very significant tsunamis. There's one at about 8,150 years ago caused by a, a massive submarine landslide off the Norwegian coast. It's called the Storega tsunami, which caused tidal waves of 20 or 30 metres to crash into the shores of, of much of Mesolithic Northern Europe. And given that we suspect that many Mesolithic communities relied quite heavily on the resources of the coast, uh, a, a tidal wave of that magnitude is not something which would have been very welcome, one suspects. So there's, there's lots of different processes of climate change um, going on through this period. Do we have any evidence of the tsunami affecting the Irish coasts? Not directly. The, um, so some, some models suggest that it should have hit parts of the Irish coast, particularly I think in the northwest, and may have been about five metres high when it did. But one of the problems is that going back to those overall changing sea levels, the, the coastline that it hit is now about 20 metres below sea level. So not somewhere that it's very easy to, to access and study. There are some coastal records of roughly the right period that seem to show significant inundations. But there are also other changes in sea level at this time that make that quite hard to, to unpick. So not very clear evidence, well, no, no clear and direct evidence at the, at the moment, but it would be an interesting thing to try and see if that can be identified. I've seen some publications where they've debated the impacts of the tsunami on other Mesolithic populations in other parts of Europe. What do you think about the the significance of that event for the course of the Mesolithic generally? Yeah, it, it's, it's a really good question. And the, um, the, 
well, one of the reasons I think it's a really good question is I'm lucky enough to be um, involved in a research project led from Norway by Astrid Nyland of the University of Stavanger um, called Last, Life After the Storega Tsunami. And what um, Astrid is doing in that project is comparing the, the impact of the Storega Tsunami on coastal populations in Norway and Scotland and trying to understand well, what, what did happen. Was there actually an immediate disaster? What was the impact on societies in the centuries or possibly even millennia that followed? And you know, was it the same in all of these different places? What was the regional variation in the impact of all of that? So to, given that that project's just starting, I might defer answering your question at the moment and we, and we can come back and discuss it in two and a half years. But it, it's a really important question. Okay. And well, I guess... Maybe that would bring us on to the question, to what degree were, were people in Ireland during the Mesolithic connected with people elsewhere? So this is this is a question which is, it's kind of been central to how the Irish Mesolithic has been, has been studied. And it's that question of connectivity. Um, it's, it, it lies behind a, a book I've just finished about Mesolithic Ireland, which is called Hunter Gatherer Ireland, Making Connections in an Island World. And those, those connections are, are absolutely central. And there's been two reasons why the, the Irish Mesolithic has, has often been considered to be somewhat different. Um, one is that Ireland was, almost all of the recent models suggest very strongly that Ireland was an island long before people arrived here. That, that colonising Ireland by humans was, was a venture which took place by boat. Um, although colonising Britain at roughly the same time period did not involve boats because Britain was still connected to, to the continent. Um, one of the consequences of Ireland's island status is that it has a very distinctive terrestrial ecology, particularly in terms of a restricted number of terrestrial fauna that made it here at the time. Um, so uh, Peter Woodman, who led Mesolithic research on Ireland for many years, often argued that some of the distinctive character of the Irish Mesolithic was because of this distinctive island environment. At the same time, one of the interesting things that happens in the Mesolithic of Ireland is there's a change in stone tool technology. Now, this, this is much more complicated than the, the simple narrative really encompasses. But in general, people talk about an earlier or an earlier Mesolithic when folk in Ireland were using the same types of stone technologies that were in use through the rest of Europe and a later Mesolithic when they developed their own distinctive island traditions and that rise of that distinctive island tradition the absence of material evidence that clearly indicates that oh here's some welsh stone found in ireland or some irish stone found in scotland has sometimes been argued to to show that ireland was isolated from from other parts of the european mesolithic at least during the the later part of the mesolithic and uh, one of the things I, I, I try and argue quite strongly in the book is that th 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 that's not necessarily the case. Ireland is is clearly part of broader European Mesolithic trends, the sorts of changes that happen, even some of the material that is found within the later Mesolithic clearly shows links and contacts to, to other places within Europe. So a lovely example of it is um, excavations by um, uh, Michael Lynch, at Fenor in County Clare, recently um, identified the first clear examples in a Mesolithic context in Ireland of perforated cowrie, sheep, cowrie shell 
beads, um, little um, beautiful little seashells, maybe 15 meters long, a very distinctive glistening material with two perforations in each of them. That's a type which is well known through later Mesolithic Europe. It's found in Scotland at about the same time as the Fenora examples, and it's found in France a, a little bit earlier than that. But those sorts of things are clearly showing connections to the, to the rest of the European Mesolithic. And the, the, the emphasis on, on isolation, I think, has been, uh, has been very unfortunate. That learning stuff, I didn't know about that. <laughs> okay, so the environment was very, very different. Um, climate change was happening, different scales, different types of climate change. How did the populations adapt? How vulnerable were they or how resilient were they to these changes? Yeah, the, the, the honest answer is we don't know. And this is this is one of the key problems. We we should, Ireland should be really well placed to understand the impact of climate change on hunting and gathering communities. We're, we're in Ireland in the northwest Atlantic, which means that all of those changes to North Atlantic circulation should be reasonably marked here. And we should be a, a space where you can pick apart these, these differences. But unfortunately, the and this is something I give a lot of the detail of in the, in the paper, unfortunately, the resolution of our archaeological data and our paleoclimate data doesn't always match very well. They're not always from the from the same places. The the proxies, the, the various sources of evidence we use, there are issues in how you combine them to order to understand cause and effect on all of those sorts of things. And there are, I think, fairly few instances where we can robustly and, and clearly identify exactly how people respond to to particular events. There's a there's a tendency years back Mike Bailey called it a kind of a, a suck in and smear approach that you if you you can find an event that happens then anything that happens near that date also ends up being dragged into to that same story and that same narrative um, and that that has been a problem in accounts of uh, of Irish prehistory I think in I think in general and it's it's not helped by the way that um, news organisations pick up on stories as well and they get simplified as they get spun out into the into the media and even if you think about the emphasis in in many funding applications and many universities on getting that big story getting that big sell it, that that i think does encourage that that here's the here's the here's the event here's the simple cause when the reality was was much much more complicated there's some good there's some good work done um Kieran Wesley did some um, great work up in Inishowen understanding the the long-term relationship between changing sea level and the sorts of locations of where mesolithic settlements were the, the, the places in the landscape that they were choosing to to adapt overall but, but overall it's a it's a case of more work is needed to to confidently be able to to identify some of those relationships um in the in the paper, for example, one of the claims that that has been made is that the eight two hundred cooling event led to significant population decline in Ireland, um, and that that population decline was associated with a loss of technological complexity. So the the change from the earlier European style stone tools to the insular tradition seen as a as a simplification of technology. And I, and I argue in, in the paper that the, the, the actual evidential basis for that, the radiocarbon dates they used to, as a proxy for, for population, and, and we could spend a long time talking about whether radiocarbon dates are really a proxy for population or not, but the sample they had for that was very, very small and not robust 
to hold those conclusions. And I've been, we've actually been working on a, a paper myself, uh, Rowan McLaughlin and, and Bob Chappell have been working on a paper summarising all radiocarbon dates for the Irish Mesolithic. And, and over the period of the 8200 event, we certainly don't see a decline in archaeological activity. There actually seems to be more activity going on through that period. So um, we, we, we still need to work out the details of what that means in terms of the response to climate change, but there's great potential in the Irish material to do that. If we could consider it from a theoretical basis, would it be possible to make comment on what we might ex- what kind of impacts we might expect climate to have had, either on the individuals or the resources that were available to them? Yeah, the it is theoretical, and it's theoretical because I think this is another area where work needs to be done. And the the so there's a tendency, a really strong tendency, to see Ireland of this period as a as a natural woodland, a series of natural resources which which hunter gatherers are exploiting, and then we we could try and see well, okay, it got colder and drier, and that means that these trees fruited in a different way, or these animals reacted in a different way, or the breeding season of these birds shifted or or moved. And we could try and work things through on that basis. Although in, in truth, we understand so little in detail about Mesolithic diets that we'd be we'd be struggling on a lot of that anyway. But the the reality of it is that Mesolithic communities fundamentally structured the ecology of early Holocene Island. They influenced the structure of woodlands. We have evidence of them managing trees, for example, coppicing areas of woodland to, to produce the, the kinds of fish traps that they're, that they're using. They introduced mammals to Ireland. We're pretty certain that they introduced wild boar to Ireland. Many people suggest they introduced wild cat or lynx to Ireland. If you really want to have fun, it's plausible that they introduced bear to Ireland as well. And all of those species would have had a significant impact on the, obviously a significant impact on the ecology and the wooded landscape. And at the moment, we're a long way away from being able to unpick all of those issues about what are the things that are causing the character of those woodlands? Is it climate? Is it human activity? So I think there's a really exciting area to be, to be looking at to develop a better understanding of, of Ireland's ecology and then being able to try and unpick these different influences of climate and humans and all the other things that are going on. The you know, hunter-gatherers, sometimes people might suspect the hunter-gatherers, are again, it comes back to these stereotypes. Are they particularly vulnerable to climate change? Obviously, they're a very small-scale society. Now, hunter-gatherers are enormously diverse in their strategies, um, in, their, in their routines and how they respond to different events. But, but generally, hunter-gatherers are very, very adaptable overall they, they find different ways of of changing when that's appropriate there are also records of hunter-gatherers who in the face of climate change stubbornly refuse to to change the things they're doing because the things they're doing are that's that that's their way of life that's how they've been doing things for generations the, the way they treat animals the way they harvest animals is bound up with their religious and spiritual beliefs and in some instances we know this is studies from newfoundland for example where they, they carry on doing that long after it would have seemed to make sense to stop and change and and do something else and of course all human societies do that at times the traditions matter and that's why people stick to well you mentioned that the Mesolithic came to an end with the beginning of the Neolithic. What happened to the Mesolithic population? What happened to their traditions, their cultures? 
Yeah. Um, so again, it's a it's a very good question, and we could spend a long time discussing exactly that. So there's a, a variety of a variety of ways we can try and answer that. So we can, for example, note that there is very little genetic signature of Mesolithic populations in Neolithic and later populations. We don't know whether that means there was a complete population replacement, whether that was to do with differential rates of um, fertility and breeding between incoming farmers and Mesolithic communities. There's, there's some evidence of occasional um, occasional evidence of Mesolithic inheritance in Neolithic communities, but it's but it's quite rare. But whatever the, the detail of the demographic process, Mesolithic communities left reasonably little genetic trace. Most aspects of Mesolithic material culture, the distinctive ways in which they made stone tools, for example, also fall out of um, use reasonably quickly in the Mesolithic, perhaps in the Neolithic, perhaps within the first few centuries um, at that stage. So it, it appears that those Mesolithic hunter-gatherer traditions seem to have been replaced at an island-wide level, you know, reasonably uniformly. And the the distinctive Irish Mesolithic, the, the the Irish Neolithic, is pretty similar to the British Neolithic overall. So Ireland seems to be bound up into a slightly different form and a, and a larger identity in terms of those archaeological archaeological signatures. So we we can say there's little continuous evidence of the of the Mesolithic there. But again, what that means in terms of did all the Mesolithic folk die out? Did those cattle that came over the Neolithic farmers bring over new diseases which the Mesolithic people were susceptible to? Did they marry into Neolithic communities and, and kind of eventually lose their identity in those sorts of ways? That those are all really still really live and really important questions. Very good. Very good. So if people are really taken with this deep remote past of ours how could they find out more about it there's a couple of things i suppose that um and the, the, the these these all fall fall into the category of absolutely shameless plugs but they have um, you got the book in <laughs> i got the book in i did that one well. no I, we have a and, and this is really if people are interested in in hunter gatherers and the way they respond to, to climate change, the way that hunter-gatherers interact with, with farmers, the way hunter-gatherers understand the world. The, uh, here in UCD, we're hosting the biggest conference on hunting and gathering societies um, in, in the world next year, in 2022. It's called CHAGS, the Conference on Hunting and Gathering Societies. Um, it's CHAGS 13. Um, and we hope that there will be, obviously, anything, planning anything in the current world is a little bit uncertain, but we hope there'll be uh, approximately five 500 researchers and representatives of hunting and gathering communities in Dublin for a week-long celebration of hunter-gatherers and, and hunter-gatherer research. So if that's of, of any interest to people, if you follow the hashtag at, Chag, sorry, at Chags131 on Twitter, then you'll get lots of updates on that. And, and the only other one is that we run a, a brand new master's course on hunter-gatherer archaeology here. At UCD. So if you fancy doing a master's and you want to learn about hunter-gatherers, come here. We're just, it's three weeks into the first trimester and our students are just back from two weeks excavating a hunter-gatherer site high up in the Cairngorm Mountains of Scotland, which was a wonderful thing to, to be able to do. So there's, if you want to follow up on any of those things, then people will be able to find information on them quite easily. What is it about the Mesolithic that fascinates you so much? The Mesolithic was the... So I came to archaeology a little bit late. I came to archaeology at a, at a master's level. 
and um, it was a it was a, a kind of transitional masters um, coming from a background that was in classical archaeology and ancient history of all of all bizarre areas, um, and the the Mesolithic was the the first part of that I encountered and something about it really, really stuck with me. And I, I didn't quite know, and I never quite understood understood why. Um, it was something about mobility and something about communities that lived in ways which were, which were very, very unfamiliar, very, very different. And it was um, only in more recent years that um, my mum and dad dug out of the loft um, some, uh, some drawings I'd done for school when I was seven or eight years old, which included a, a whole bunch of... Uh, homework or classwork I don't know um, images of hunter-gatherers so there were um, primitive humans and that was you know, my, my text on there um, or supposedly primitive humans hunting a mammoth um, drawn with a, an eight-year-old boy's relish for all the blood pouring out of the mammoth on all of those and um, other ones of people collecting wild grasses and becoming a farmer and I can remember the book that all of those that all of those came from some kind of kids encyclopedia and I think it's I, I think fundamentally and it's also how bits of the way I work has changed. I think it's about hunter-gatherers. And I think it's about that idea of hunter-gatherers and the power that idea has in contemporary society, that somehow hunter-gatherers are, are held up as a, as a what's, our, what, what's, what's our authentic way of being in, in some ways. That it's, the, it's the alternative to all the ills of, of modernity. And that's, that's a really problematic stereotype about hunter-gatherers and we have some work coming out shortly trying to look at that stereotype in Britain and Ireland at the moment. But I do think it's the it's that fascination with the idea of, of hunter-gatherers, the way that that, even as a seven-year-old, that was being drummed into me. That you know, we, we, Once we were all hunter-gatherers and then we moved on and we changed from that, farming led us to be something different than, than we once were. But I think I've realised more and more that that's, that really has underpinned a lot of my interest in this. I, I think when, when people hear the word hunter-gatherer, they, they focus on the hunter. They imagine the hunting. Um, I personally, I'm extremely drawn to the gathering. I absolutely love foraging. But it does raise the question, you, you mentioned already that Ireland had an impoverished um, ecosystem, essentially. There were many aspects in the Irish landscape that were missing compared to what, was, what, what they had in, in Britain. Um, what and you you mentioned that we knew very little about what they lived on. What can you say about what resources were exploited? Okay, so if we let, 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 let's narrow it down a little bit and think about resources in terms of food, because obviously there are resources for craft and, and all sorts of things. We know that some Mesolithic communities um, relied very heavily on marine foods for their for their protein so we can look at the chemical composition of the the very small number of skeletal remains that we have and some mesolithic communities on the coast it seems that most of their protein was coming from marine sources other mesolithic communities on the coast broadly contemporary in terms of time period their proteins were coming from a mixture of marine and terrestrial resources and some mesolithic communities have a lower level of marine input in there. So there's clearly a, a significant diversity of Mesolithic diets. There is, there is no one way of being Mesolithic in Ireland. It changes across time and it changes across space. Um, so people would have eaten fish and we have evidence for the use of kind of inshore 
fishing, inshore fishing in rocky environments. Um, there's a, a variety of fish which are which are popular there. One which actually turns up a lot on Mesolithic sites and might surprise people is conger eel. Um, conger eel wouldn't necessarily be considered a big eating fish now, but it's relatively common. And some of those are quite big as well. Some of the a site I worked on in Mayo, some of the conger eel there are probably more than a metre in length. So that's not, that's not trivial fishing to, to get those. We have some evidence of the use of um, mammals such as wild boar and hints, no more than hints in the data, that there might be some kind of management of those resources in terms of culling strategies. Um, and we have lots of evidence of um, the use of lots, some evidence of the use of birds, for example, so um, waterfowl which you might expect, you know, water fowl, you might expect to be quite tasty. Um, but there's also other interesting things. And I'll say something about gathering in a moment. We, we have a surprising amount of, um, the surprising appearance of what seems to be evidence of Mesolithic people consuming birds of prey, including things like peregrine falcons, owls and eagles. And according to the literature, and I should stress I've not tried this, according to the literature, you, you can eat those things, but they don't taste great. And there are also things which aren't going to be very easy to, to track down overall. So one idea I've, I've played with in the past and, and published is that actually what's happening there is people aren't eating those resources for their calorific values. They're eating them for some other property, whether it's the spirit of the animal, the, the strength of the animal, the speed of the falcon, the eye, whatever it might be, that there's just a hint there of those very, very different understandings of the world that hunter-gatherers would have would have had those very very different ways of making sense of material and that the eating as as e- eating for us isn't just about calories and it wasn't just about calories for for mesolithic populations but to come back to your comment about gathering and and foraging uh, for for preservation reasons we understand less about the range of plant foods that people would have would have eaten hazelnuts um, tend to dominate the record because the way that they're processed sometimes leads to the carbonization of their shells and those are then quite robust so people clearly ate hazelnuts but there's a variety of other wild fruits and seeds that, that turn up as well so water lily for example raspberry and um, cleavers or goose grass there's a there's a range of different things so some sites we get these little snapshots of of some of that diversity of the of the resources of the of the of the woodlands and the coasts which people have other ones we we, we have less detail overall but there's yeah if, if you forage today you'll know there's a there's an enormous range of different plants available in the Irish landscape, which are healthy, nutritious, um, and yeah, and in many cases, really quite nice to eat. Some of them taste horrible, but yeah, <laughs> most of them are quite nice. Well, I, so it's 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 knowledge that we've lost, really, about what plants are out there that we could live on if we had to. Absolutely, but the only thing I'd stress there, and it's because this is a people often talk about that loss of knowledge and they make that loss of knowledge something that happened when we stopped being hunter-gatherers. I reckon your average medieval peasant knew quite well which parts of the wooded landscape they could eat and which parts they couldn't. The, the loss, I think, has come much more recently and it's not just a product of when we invented agriculture. It's about the particular ways we live today and the, the ways that are the ways in which modern life disassociates us 
from the the world around us. That, that's where that loss has taken place. But you see very commonly people arguing that you know, if we if we want to go back and better understand nature, then we have to go back to our hunter gatherer past. And I think that's that's profoundly misguided. If we want to go back and better understand nature, then horticulture also encourages those sorts of things. You know, it's not just a preserve of hunter-gatherers to have a more sustaining and fulfilling relationship with the natural world. Wonderful. Is there anything else you want to... The main, the main thing is to, to, to thank you for the opportunity to, to be involved in this. And I, I hope there's something in this which is of interest to, to listeners. Graham Warren, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Not at all, Jill. Thank you very much indeed. Climbland Society in Ireland is available from the Royal Irish Academy and in all good bookshops. Thank you for listening.